Okay. Hello, everyone, and good morning from Jordan. Uh, I'm Arish from Jordan, and I'm the CEO lead for Jordan Chapter. Uh, it is nice to meet you all, and I'm very happy to be uh, the new CEO lead for Jordan Chapter. Today, we are talking with Adrian War, who has a big, big uh, background. And uh, I will let him start the conversation by talking about his big and interesting background. That is very kind. Not that big and not that impressive, but very no, kind no. of you. No, no, <laughs> I feel very big. <laughs> so, uh, good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, or good evening, depending on where you're dining in from. My name's Adrian, uh, and I, um, well, I'm the CEO of the Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Thailand offices of a big communications company called Edelman. Uh, and I also manage employee experience for the region. And I've worked in communications for over 20 years, um, first in in the US, and then in London for a while, and then in uh, here in Hong Kong is where I'm based at the moment and have been for the last seven or eight years. Um, and uh, very happy to meet you all today and be here to have a chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that you are a Harvard graduate in literature, and that Oxford. was very, very interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> Oxford, not Harvard, but similar. Sorry, sorry, Oxford. Um, okay. Yeah, I studied, uh, I studied language and literature, which mm-hmm. um, not very useful yeah. <laughs> in terms careers and so I studied a French and Italian language which is very useful but then 18th and 17th century philosophy and literature which is not great for job interviews after you leave university but I think um, you know it's it's interesting and it's, it's proved more useful than I thought it would be later on in my career but yeah I studied there at Oxford and it was very yeah. good fun there's not many vocational degrees in the field of work that I'm in so there weren't many communications um, degrees and I, I, to be honest at that stage before university I'm not sure that I knew I wanted to be in communications anyway I think I was still probably working out what I wanted to do so uh, yeah it is a big shift so <laughs> Uh, what completed you to become the CEO of Edelman? Was this is in your plan, and uh, how was the journey like? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I was um, thinking about this in advance. It, it, I don't think I set out in this career path or choice with a conscious view of becoming CEO of a company or part of a company. Uh, I think it's something that you gradually evolve into and that you gradually start setting your sights on. I think it's human nature that you can only... People, people always ask you that question in, in career management conversations. You know, what is your seven-year or five-year or ten-year aspiration? I don't think people really know that far ahead. You have a vague idea of options, but I don't think anyone quite knows where, you, where you're going to go. I think you... Uh, the journey has been marvelous and it's been great fun. I've worked in some fabulous places and I wish in a way I'd be more conscious through the journey of what the end goals would be and where I'm heading because I probably would have paid more attention to the lessons along the way. I think it's I think what happens is you get to a stage in life and a stage in your career 
where that kind of job suddenly becomes relevant and accessible. I think early on in your career, you see CEOs and, and leaders of any big business, you see the big bosses as just not relevant to you and not necessarily uh, in touch or something that's a realistic aspiration for you. And I think you then reach a point in your career later on where you think, actually, yeah, I could do that and maybe I want to. And then you start thinking about it. And I think that only happened to me five, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. That is very inspiring. Okay, what was your starting point from where you start to be a CEO? And what are the challenges that you, uh, that, uh, the, that you did face in your mm. position, position? The starting point of my career was... Um, so the starting point of career right, versus starting point of, of becoming a CEO. The starting point of my career was being joining a graduate training scheme for a communications company in London called Helen Knowlton. Um, and um, that is a very good place, I think, to start any career. Graduate training schemes are, I think, immensely useful as a way of getting your foot onto the job ladder. And they were, it was a difficult time to do it. It was around about the year 2000, I think. Uh, no, 1999, 2000, when I was applying to these kind of schemes. And it's hard to get on them. Um, and there's a lot of competition to get through the door and you have to work quite hard for those interviews. And I remember it was the first time I'd really focused on my career in a very big way um, and did spend a lot of time practicing for those interviews and thinking through how I was going to handle them. Uh, and I managed to get onto that graduate scheme and uh, thankfully was right uh, in my decision to go for it. And I just really enjoyed the job. I enjoyed the industry that we're in and and Uh, immediately had a good feel about the direction I was going. But I've always worked in big agencies, mm-hmm. um, so large companies, you know, many thousand people. So when I was starting out as a graduate, the concept of being in a leadership position was just way, way, way off. Mm-hmm. It was not even realistic to me. I didn't know whether I'd be staying in an agency or anything like that. So I did, certainly wouldn't have planned starting to think about being a CEO until much, much later. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in sort of a decade or so ago. And that's, I think, when you start thinking about the journey to becoming it. And I think that's where you start thinking about um, what I need to learn, what I need to improve, what I don't know, um, and how you can achieve that kind of position. Okay. It's very, very different from... from uh, I, I, sort of, I don't know, I would see my career as kind of three halves, uh, sorry, three parts. There was being a young professional where... Um, You know, the first sort of five or ten years where you are part of a big company, you're learning the industry. Then I think there's a middle part where you're learning management. You're learning to manage other yeah. people who are coming into yeah. that industry. And then I think you switch into leadership, which is what it is. It's sort of trying to take a defining or leading role in shaping uh, your business's position within an industry. It's a hard journey. So what are the challenges that you face in this three parts journey? Well, now, I mean, I think one of the big challenges um, is that um, there isn't that much training that can teach you what to know. You kind of have to learn everything on the job, mm-hmm. which does mean making a fair few mistakes. I'm, um, I'm surprised of that. I think that we have this thing just in Middle East. No. No, no, honestly, I think 
I think that if if, the, if it was easy to create that kind of training for sort of leadership positions, then I think we'd be better at doing it. I think it's just a very difficult thing to train people for because um, because it's very complex. There's large parts of it that are about managing people and humans. There's large parts of it that are about financial stuff. There's lots of it that's about operations, legalities, HR. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do and you can't train everyone for all of that. You do have to learn it on the job. So the obstacles are that you need to, if you're not looking out for the opportunities to learn, they're going to pass you by. Yes. You know, I remember being at an agency uh, a few years ago um, where we sold the company to Omnicom mm-hmm. and um, I wasn't close enough really at the time to see the process of how we sold the company and I just thought well that's other people's jobs I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on my job and I'm gonna let the other guys work out how you go through the process of selling the company um, that's a great example of where I missed a huge opportunity to learn something that would be very useful later in life and because you're thinking well that's not my job that's someone else's job you're actually missing an opportunity to learn something that's going to be useful further down the line if you don't spot and jump on those opportunities I think it's much much harder to get to the position so you think practices is more important than training? No, I think uh, training is super important. I think training is vitally important. I've been really lucky in a, in a lot of my companies to have excellent training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, you have to have a combination of all things. You think you have to have training, which is um, more formulaic. I think you also absolutely need mentors, buddies, senior guidance. You need someone that's going to teach you mm-hmm. on the job. And then you just need lots of experience where you go out and learn things yourself, make mistakes and try it out and put it in practice. I think you've got to have all three. You can't have just one or two of those things. They all have to marry together. You've got to have training on the, the sort of the theory of it all, the ability to make mistakes and learn it yourself, but sort of a, a wing person who's there to, to help and guide you on, on the mistakes that you make. And I've been lucky to have, certainly at this company here, where I, where is, where I got this position at... Um, as CEO, it's the first time I've had a position in leadership that's that's of this scale. I had all three of those things. I was very lucky to, you know, it was good training in the run-up. Um, I had the experience to learn on the job over a good period of time. And I had uh, my boss at the time, an, an amazing guy called Bob Grove, who was there to help guide me through, um, you know, the first year or so, actually, uh, to help me make mistakes with a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. That you have jumped to the, to my next question. That uh, did you have uh, mentors and that uh, guide you to yeah. uh, your uh, journey? It's good to have a mentor. They uh, will uh, put you on the first step. They will uh, let's say correct your work, uh, help you to uh, develop more. Uh, so yeah. you said about your boss, and I think he was a good mentor. <laughs> he yeah, did, yeah, he yeah. Did a good job. Yeah. You've, you've got to have lots of flavors of different people that can help you out. That's why I've, I've been very, very lucky to have lots and lots of people that have helped me get uh, to this position. Um, it, believe me, it has absolutely not been based off any skill on my part. It, it, so you, you, want, you need people within the business that are close to the business that you're in, that are in a more senior position or parallel to you, who can give you guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took over as CEO just of Hong Kong, I had a colleague in another market who had been doing a similar job in another market for 10 years who I could turn to and have a chat with and, and discuss. I had my boss who was um, happened to be based in the same office as well who 
I could chat to on a daily basis if I needed to um, about how things work. But I think you want a lot of other advice and input as well. You need friends outside of your workplace who you can chat to about issues. So people who know the industry and know your job but aren't in your workplace, that's incredibly useful. Um, And I think you need people from other industries to give you different perspectives on how they go about leadership, on how they manage businesses. Um, I think there's there's a big difference as well between people who you can just turn to for advice, people who are mentors, and people who are sponsors. And you need all of those. So you need people who you can just turn to and have a casual chat. A mentor is someone who I think you can discuss and get advice from and have structured conversations around your career and your development. A sponsor, I think, goes a step even further and they are like an agent or a cheerleader for you. They will help find you opportunities and promote you and help put you forward for stretch projects, help recommend you when you're up for interviews. So I think you need a range of things um, from advice to mentor to sponsors to, to, to help you kind of get there. Okay, so where we can find these variety of people? Okay, you can find uh, lots of them in your workplace, but where you can find some yeah. out of your workplace? Yeah, it's very very difficult. I think you, uh, I think if you if you think of it as how do you go and find these people, then I think it's going to be difficult because um, you don't naturally. It's not like there is a retail store where there's just lots of these mentors lined yeah. up on shelves. That would be lovely. I think what you do is you you meet people through your career mm-hmm. who you recognize are going to be really inspirational for you, who you recognize you can learn from, and you have to actively try and keep them in your life. Um, okay. A lot of the people I turn to for advice are people that I've worked with 15, 20 years ago, okay. um, who I've wanted to stay close to, and that's either through staying close on LinkedIn, through sharing occasional messages, through having a couple of calls every year or so, Um, my industry is, is relatively close-knit, so there's lots of events where we bump into each other or see each other. So there are ways of staying in contact, but you have to make an effort. You know, It's a bit mm-hmm. like remembering your Christmas card list. You've got to remember to stay in contact with them and you've got to make an effort to engage with them. Uh, and I think you find a lot of people through that. There are other ways that are really important. So um, one of the charities I work with, Um, the Women's Foundation based here in Hong Kong. They have There are many similar char- charitable foundations. They will often have mentoring schemes. Um, that, so there are, there and those will exist for LGBTQ. There, there are many great ones for race equality and gender equality where you can find great mentors through those kind of groups. Mm. There are, if you go to any particular universities or do an MBA course, they often provide that kind of access to the alumni. And so you can build networks through those as well. Um, and then, you know, there are people that you can reach out to through professional bodies. So most industries will have a professional body, an industry body, a bank. You know, if you're in banking, there will be a bankers association in your market. Um, those, body, those bodies put together events and they often have mentoring schemes built in. And those are well worth exploring. Um, my advice for anyone that's looking seriously at career development is to early on try and collect as many relationships as you can with people that you think might be good mentors and stay in touch with the ones that work for you where there's going to be good mutual benefit um but try lots and Mm -hmm. and hopefully build a network of good people who you'll be able to draw on later on it is good to be socialized some uh, uh, 
some people don't like to, to be socialized using uh, social communities, uh, doing uh, some charity things. And I like that it was uh, remarkable when I read your uh, profile that you are a man who is uh, want to be uh, a gender writer or you are a gender writer and that is very good on female issues and that was very remarkable here in middle east we don't have uh, such people like this so i was very impressed in this so uh, when we are uh, talking about socializing and using social communities i think linkedin uh, was yeah. very uh, let's say good or, or uh, very improvable when we are in COVID-19 we know that COVID-19 uh, was very uh, give us more issues and more problems so how do you see the current COVID-19 challenges that bring to the students or uh, the youth generation mm-hmm. yeah what on from uh, this uh, pandemic yeah well i mean i quite hmm, i think it does make things harder i quite like some benefits of it in a big way i mean interestingly because none of us can go and meet people individually and because we can't do networking events it has shaken up the dynamics of how networking usually benefits people so networking plays networking and this this old adage in business of it's who you know not what you know um, and the ability to sort of work relationships with people, that has always played in favour of extroverts and men, um, which is not an in, not a huge part of society as a whole, actually. And one of the nice things about everything switching remote is that uh, it can play into the hands of people that are not comfortable going to some yeah. silly event, walking around with a glass of champagne and eating canapes, right? Uh, some people are comfortable with that, some people aren't. And I quite like the fact that the remote world has opened it up for you to be able to have mentoring relationships or do networking globally like this. You know, there's people from all around the world on the call today and that would not have been possible or, or as normal a while ago. I think you have to I think you have to take advantage of that though. I think you yeah. have to be a bit more confident in developing those relationships and LinkedIn is tricky because it's a platform where people get a lot of spam yeah and so it's it's a great platform for building engagement where you've already got some engagement where you've already got a relationship with someone or where you're connected but connecting to someone new is incredibly hard on LinkedIn whereas walking up to them at an event is a bit easier so i think it has made things harder in some ways to build a new network but i think there are lots of facilities such as this that are easier at making that happen you know for what it's worth anyone that's on the call today if you follow me up on linkedin afterwards and say hey it was great to see you at that event love to connect i I would connect with all there's nothing that would stop me doing that and i think most people would and that then is a bunch of, you know that's a bunch of new connections that you can make through these events where you can build more of a, a network online so i think it helps but um yeah i think it i think it's made things like mentoring and sponsorship a little bit harder um because it's it's harder for you to gather and collect relationships where there's a difference in seniority it's harder to get a much more senior mentor relationship together in just an online community so it's it's six of one and half a dozen another i think it's improved and leveled the playing field for some people but it's also made some things a little bit harder to achieve 
<laughs> but I liked uh, <laughs> this pandemic because it pushed me to the max, pushed my students to the max, make them uh, engaged in uh, technology. Some of yeah. them didn't know that because I'm uh, an, uh, a teacher educator, so I teach or uh, uh, train uh, adults. Uh, they yeah. don't know how to use technology, and that was good. Even if we have spam on LinkedIn, we learn how to deal with the spammer and yeah. uh, do another plan to uh, uh, know, know other people. So I yeah. think you, uh, you've got uh, the point. Okay, how can uh, people, uh, sorry, students or uh, youth uh, pre- uh, better prepare themselves right now and in the future? And what are your ad, uh, advices to them to be a CEO in the future if they want to be that? And what should they, yeah. they know and what should they learn? And what skills are better and crucial to develop themselves? I know yeah. are big questions. Yeah, yeah, no, they are big questions. And, I, and look, I think that, that one of the underlying things here is that I don't think anyone um, leaves university or starts work or wakes up one day and says, right, I want to go and be a CEO. Um, I think people would like want to be good at the industry that they've chosen to be in. And so if, if you know, if you reframe that question to how should people go about being successful in a career that they want to be great in? How can they build a successful career and get to the top of an industry or whatever? I think the first challenge you've got is picking what industry and what you want to be doing. And most people, for most people, that's actually a lot harder than it looks. Most people build their desire of what they want to do in their career on um, what we call affinity bias. It's what you see your parents, family and friends do. Yes. Uh, and, And it's limited to your own experience. And I think it's a terrible shame that that has a tendency to rob people of some amazing career choices. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of people go into professional services industries because mum and dad did it or their uncle or aunt did it and it pays well. And, um, you know, the latter part may well be true in the first few years, but actually with a lot of jobs that equal out after a certain amount of time. So I think the first thing is... is to, to do a lot of research throughout university and as you're leaving university to try and work out what career you might be good at and base that on what you really care about, what's interesting to you and what are your skills and be careful to think about what's really interesting to you, not that year or the last couple of years, but what's interesting to you consistently through your life so far. Um, you may well leave university thinking all I care about is basketball and I absolutely love basketball. You're probably not going to care that much about it when you get to my age and you're a little bit fatter. Uh, it's going to be less interesting. So you, you, you want to think about something that's going to be, there's really a passion that you're going to be skillful at and you're going to be good and, and look at that particular industry. I think more than ever these days, the ability to, um, the, the, ability to show an understanding of an industry and what it's about is important at job interview. You need to turn up well-researched on what that industry is about, what the trends are in that industry, how it works. And that means doing a lot of research with people that work in that industry. So look, I think that's the first thing. The the biggest stumbling block that people tend to have in in sort of having a successful career is I often find that they've just not thought that much about picking the right career or the right job. So it's matching your skills and your interests to what you want to be doing. Sounds simple, but it's honestly one of the biggest things 
The second thing that is really important to gather early on is uh, a, um, I think, self-awareness of what your skills are and aren't. Yes. Um, it turns out what I realise I'm good at now is not what I thought I was good at 15 years ago. Um, and there are lots of things that I thought I'd be rubbish at 15 years ago that it turns out I'm actually fairly good at. Um, so I think through a process of experience and trying lots of new things, you need to learn what you're good at and what you're maybe not that good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and think about um, how you therefore want to improve the things that you might want to try and address or just be honest about the fact they're not strengths and focus on what your strengths are. But I think having a good understanding of what you're good at is really important. I remember calling up a recruiter when I wanted to move to Hong Kong um, to get a job about 15 years ago. And she asked me a very simple question. She was like, okay, well, look, what is it that you're going to add to the company that you're going to join? And I couldn't answer. I just had an absolutely rubbish hollow answer. And it comes down to the fact that I just simply hadn't reflected that much on what I'm really good at. It's a big question and it's a hard one. It's a good question and it's really hard to answer. Yes. It's, and, it, and if you fluff that answer in an interview, as an interviewer, I'm just going to think, you haven't thought this one through. You know, you've got to have a good answer. You've got to be able to say, well, look, what I can do is I can build amazing relationships with clients because I'm a great people person. I'm a man of enormous detail, so I can project manage large, complex things. I'm a diplomat, so I can help manage conflicts between different areas and manage uh, tensions between different cultures. You've got to have good answers to what value you're actually going to deliver. Um, And people don't, we're not encouraged to spend enough time thinking about that, really. Um, And our performance management systems tend not to get us thinking about that. So I think that's a big one. Um, And then I think the biggest factor in my industry that I think drives people to uh, success is is curiosity, being curious about what the next job is, being curious about what the next trend is, about not what my job is today, but what the job in the industry might be tomorrow. Um, No one has that answer. If you do have that answer, then you're already going to be a CEO. So that's great. But I think having a thirst for, for learning what that answer might be is important. Um... Then the final thing, and I say this with the benefit of hindsight, because hindsight is, is 20-20. You spend most of your career working through a business and everything that you see that's frustrating, you assume because it's really badly managed and everyone above you is doing a bad job and they must be idiots. Yes. And what that does is it stops you from learning a great deal. It stops you from challenging your own perspectives. And a great question that I now still ask myself instead of moaning about, Um, you know, people higher up that are, that are making decisions. I just think a good piece of career advice is to always ask, what if I'm wrong? Um, and try and think through why something is being done another way, not why it's just annoying to you. If you're constantly trying to think about why some, a decision is being made instead of just being annoyed about how a decision is made, it challenges you to think about the next level up, the next job up the wrong. Yes, it is good to ask questions, especially why. Because if you are still thinking about uh, uh, the aspect or what happened, it, it will make you go back, not uh, go, uh, let's say, go straight forward. Yeah. I want to ask the shift from uh, being a literature or uh, studying literature to be a uh, CEO of Edelman. Uh, how can you do this? Some people think that you must stay in your job, don't uh, do anything, 
and be an ordinary, ordinary uh, let's say, employee. How yeah. this shift? Uh, how would you do this shift? What well, I mean, you know, I chose an industry that fits in well with what I studied. So I studied languages and literature, but ultimately that's about the use of words to be persuasive. Mm -hmm. Right? It's about writing things in a way that people want to read them, uh, or it's about capturing complex thoughts in a way that make things easy to understand. If you think about the industry that I've joined, communications, PR, digital marketing, yes. it's exactly what we do every day. Yes. So. So a lot of a lot of things that you study at university, you know, you, you hear these languages of wealth. Good luck finding a job with that. Um, you hear that a lot, and actually, if you think about it, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's great training um, for whatever you're going to do later. If it's mental exercise, I don't know if you've ever seen the Karate Kid. You probably haven't. It's totally wrong audience for this reference. But in the Karate Kid, this boy ends up secretly learning karate by polishing a car. Yes, right. I saw. I saw. He's kind of exercise, but he's accidentally learning karate. It's the same with a lot of degrees that you're doing that are non-vocational. You're learning skills that may seem completely useless over here, but when you turn them to a job, they're probably going to be very useful. So, so it wasn't to, to your question. It wasn't that much of a transformation to go from doing language and literature to doing what I'm doing. Um, what made me want to be part of leadership um, rather than? you know, part of the team sort of getting the work done is, it's, I think, um, that in, in a lot of industries, certainly in mine, there's a level to which your individual excellence will get you. And it's not very far. Mm -hmm. You then become dependent on a team yes. and how that team operates and how that team works together. There are very, very, very few industries that you can go into where you are where it's a solo sport you know yes. like a concert pianist okay great you're on your own but even if you're a brain surgeon or something you've got a team of nurses doctors pathologists yes. anesthetists all around you making it happen mm -hmm. um if you're a banker or a lawyer or whatever you want to go to there's a team of people making stuff happen even so your individual ability actually becomes a little bit irrelevant fairly yes. early in your career and it's your ability to work with a team but then the really interesting next bit is how you can manage a team. How can you get a bunch of amazing people with different skills to work together to achieve a goal better than other teams? That is a is a is ultimately the the kind of the job in leadership, and it doesn't matter what you, what industry you're in. That's what you're doing, and that I think is a really fun and interesting challenge. And whether you do literature or maths or science at university, it's still interesting and still fun and still a great challenge to try and manage and lead a team to success and I think once you start doing it it's a really enjoyable job and it's not even that you then set your sights on right I must be CEO it's just if you like doing that and you're good at it that's probably where your path is going to go and that is the differences between being a manager and being a leader uh, this is I think uh, the biggest or the important a skill that you must learn about because we are we as people like to be an individual and be an, uh, be a solo and do everything so we must learn about how to be a team member how to do it in a good way uh, there must be a col collaboration and cooperation in a good manner and a good way and it is very simple just be a team member okay uh, who are the people who inspire you to be uh, Mr. Adrian Ward, CEO of uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, and uh, 
ريسنتلي تايلاند هو انسبايرز مي اي مين ذير ار لوتس اوف بيبل ذات انسبايرز مي ان ديفرنت وايز ذير ار بيبل ويذن ماي اندستري ا لوت اوف ماي كوليجز دو So just day to day around the office, stuff that some of your colleagues will do, you'll find immensely inspiring. Um, then there are, you know, you have bosses. I have bosses within my company who I think are inspirational, my mentor and um, and uh, my CEO, both individuals who I you know learn from every time I talk to them and find immensely motivating and inspiration to talk to. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the people that I find most inspiring are people that are not in my industry. Um, and it uh, tends to be, so I work a lot, as you mentioned before, I'm a passionate advocate for gender equality and I work with a couple of charities for gender equality. The CEOs and leaders of, of people who are running NGOs, I find immensely inspiring. because uh, they work twice as hard for half the money but also they're achieving truly incredible things yes. and often fighting very complex and difficult battles with multiple stakeholders um and i find that they can be uh, the people you can learn the most from i find really good communicators and good writers really inspirational i think some of the management speakers like simon sinek and people like that are really great to listen to and inspirational um but i think Yeah, I draw my inspiration mainly probably from my more immediate team and family, from my yes. family as well. Yes, yes, of course. It's good to have uh, information from this and information from that. Uh, teach from uh, any anybody, uh, even if he is, uh, let's say, in a less job than you. It, is, it will be a good opportunity to uh, know new things I learned from my uh, student teachers. Uh, and yeah. when I was in school, I learned from my students uh, new things. I will say I know about Facebook from my students, not from <laughs> And let my son do uh, the job. Uh, put me yeah. in the Facebook. And then I know, know about LinkedIn from my colleagues. So yeah. this is a good thing to uh, be informable by uh, other people. Yeah. Okay, Adrian, we have here some questions that oh. is, I think is good. Okay, yeah. from Albert. Albert say, would you recommend a mentor who is in the same organization or otherwise? Or both? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think uh, it depends on your job and what you want out of a mentoring relationship. Um, having been mentored and having been a mentor, Um, I now realize there's a huge amount of skill and structure needed to it. And I think um, some of my colleagues have been doing qualifications and in courses to learn. And I think uh, you, you want to look out for mentors that have done those, by the way. But you, you need to have a specific objective, I think, for what you want to get out of mentors. If you ha- pick a mentor that's within your firm, that is probably about your broad career development or about a very specific skill that you need to develop or hone within your business. And that's because those those two objectives marry with the fact that they're going to know you and know the business very well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But because if, if you're looking for a mentor outside of your business, mm-hmm. that mentor is going to be able to provide you with uh, inspiration, different perspectives, ideas for career development outside of the business that you're in, 
connections to other people that might be useful for your business and your job. There's all sorts of other benefits there, but they are not going to be the best at giving you career advice for what, how to get your next promotion on your current skill set versus the goals you need to meet. You know, they're not going to be close to your day-to-day job. So you need, so in an ideal world, why not have both, right? Have somebody within the business who is a mentor or a sponsor mm-hmm. and somebody externally from outside the business who is a mentor or a sponsor. You'll cover both bases. And when you have your first meeting with those mentors to agree the relationship, you want to set objectives for that year. You want to say, right, we're going to meet five times this year. What I would like to achieve from this is is X. What would you like to achieve? You agree that and write that on a bit of paper so that you've got clear goals of what you want to achieve with, with each one. Now I know why you, why you are a CEO. You are a, an organizer. You are good. You have <laughs> and that is a great thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Young, he said he trained as a proof communicator and been in comms for years. He recently mm-hmm. joined a mentorship and ma- uh, his mentor uh, has a wealth of experience in commercial. What would you what? would be your advice uh, for him to navigate the relation with his mentor? Well, as I just said, I think setting objectives is really important. Having a clear understanding of what you want to achieve. Uh, and I think treating it um, as much as possible as a as you would a career development scheme. So I'll tell you how not to do it. What you don't want to do is just meet someone, organize, and, you know, think, oh, can, I, can you be my mentor? Ask them. They say yes, hopefully. And then just meet them in a coffee shop once every couple of months and have a random chat. That's a bad use of your time and a bad use of their time. And uh, at best, you'll get nothing from it. At worst, you'll actually damage a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you want to do um, is is control and drive a relationship with a mentor. Remember, when you meet a mentor, especially if it's external, they don't know you and you're looking to impress them a bit as well as 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 everyone else because you want that mentor to sing your praises to talk about how great you are so you want to impress upon them what what your skills and benefits are so i think taking control of the relationship i think going to them in the first meeting and saying look this is what i'm like this is the feedback i've had in past reviews these are the things i'd like to work on there are kind of four or five things You know, I don't know you. You've got unique skill sets that I think are amazing. Which of these do you think you could help me with? And which do you think we should, you know, focus on? Discuss with them how they can help you, agree the goals, and then say, right, okay, if this is our goal and we want to achieve X within a year, how often can you meet? How should we structure our conversations? Should we have an agenda for each meeting that we're achieving? How do we know after three months and six months that we're making progress and sort of course adjust? and treat it like a very structured relationship um, so that you can ensure that you're gaining things out of it. What you absolutely must do is have, you know, your mentor doesn't necessarily need to get much out of the relationship other than to know that you're making progress. Yes, it's a good controlled relationship and a moderate one. Don't uh, do the hard thing and don't uh, do nothing. You must be a moderate in having this relationship. Okay, I have a question from me. I have, I forget it. Why do you go to Hong Kong and live your uh, home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great question. Um, it is a long way from home. I think travel in all of its forms and living in different cultures is immensely improving. Yes. I think it's good for your soul. I think it's very good for your brain. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's good for your career. 
I think you learn an enormous amount by living with people of a different culture and different perspectives. So I've always been a fan of, of working in multiple places. I think the more markets you experience and the more worlds you see and the more people you meet, the more opportunities you create. Yes. Uh, and I think the more you learn. Why I chose Hong Kong, um, it, uh, I see the this side of the world. I see Asia Pacific and specifically China as well as some of the most interesting markets in my particular industry because they are much in the same way as they are with technology and my business is inextricably linked to technology. You're seeing markets that are leapfrogging trends. Instead of copying what's happened in the West or in developed markets, you're seeing them skip a stage and jump to a new form, a different type of communication, a different type of engagement with stakeholders. And that to me is very exciting. Um, and so Hong Kong is the easy hub for Asia Pacific for someone in my industry, along with Singapore, maybe. Um, and so I wanted to come here to um, experience being in Asia, to learn from this market and meet people in, in, the, in the Asia Pacific region and build some new opportunities. That, and it's really nice and warm and they've got lovely beaches and I'm very close to some really lovely holiday places. And I think uh, lovely food also. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. You have a hi from JD okay, uh, in Hong Kong. He said, how has the perception of CEOs changed in the past 12 month, months? How has this shifted uh, the landscape in communication, particularly the needs from clients? Hello, John. Good to see you. Can't see you, but, but good to hear from you. Uh, how has the perception of CEOs changed in the past 12 months? I could tell you, over a longer time scale, I can tell you it's been interesting. It's gone up and down a bit, but predominantly down. Uh, CEOs as a voice of trust for people externally are increasingly less trusted. And um, just the job title itself tends to come with a certain amount of baggage. So... We've, we've seen research that if you put somebody up and say, you know, show them a speech and say, do you trust this person? They'll say yes. If you put this up and show a different group of people and it says CEO on the bottom, they will automatically trust them less because the word CEO is there. So there is baggage that comes with the word. And I think it's affected how they communicate, when they communicate and what they do. Um, the expectation, and it goes in hand though with a very unfair expectation. And I don't say this is on me because... <laughs> Because I, I think this only counts for CEOs of very big companies. Um, so I hope that this, this wouldn't count for me. But I think the expectation on CEOs increasingly in businesses is unrealistic, almost impossible. CEOs are expected to not just run a successful and profitable com company for shareholders. Uh, it is expected that all of their employees will be without fault happy that their company will never make a mistake and that they these days that they will have a proactive and positive view, even contribution to societal issues. All of those things are very, very hard to do. And I think our level of tolerance is increasingly, um, I think, unrealistic. Uh, and there are, there are areas where it is right for us to have very high expect expectations of CEOs. But also, a lot of the time, I think we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment. We expect businesses to be able to answer societal issues now around immigration, around politics, around, well, health, around COVID now. 
that businesses have not historically been set up to do and they don't have the mandate to do and they don't have the investment to do. And uh, so it is difficult for CEOs. I think there's there's an element of them feeling like they're under siege from lots of difficult stakeholders. Um, and that, so to, to your point on what clients need from PR counsel, it's now broader than ever. But I think it is, you know, a lot of, a lot of this comes, and it's why I think, you know, firms such as yours, John, and, and others, that work in communications are really important because it does a lot of the time come down to communications. Businesses are not going to be able to answer their view on immigration easily, as in they're probably not going to be able to construct a strategy around it, but they do need to be able to answer the question and communicate about it. CEOs all too often get to their position within a company because they're very good at what they do. What they do in that company is not necessarily communicating. They might be a brilliant engineer. They might be amazing at, at aviation. They could be absolutely fantastic at building new technology. But often they're not going to be doing what I do. They're not going to be coming up doing communications. So they're not necessarily armed to answer all of these difficult questions that are coming at them from governments, stakeholders, media. And I think that's where our, our industry has to step in and try and help them with stuff. Okay. Uh, Ken uh, asked that you have mentioned three phases. Uh, does, does leadership development only happen at the third phase or it may be earlier? Oh, no, it's, it's definitely happening earlier. My kids are six and I can see them flexing <laughs> their leadership skills right now. And it, 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 as humans, any situation in which you are operating within a group you are kind of practicing your leadership skills, right? You're sort of seeing where you fit within that group. And and um, I think school and universities are prime times where you are being set up to start to learn those things. So, you know, if you've been in a music group, a sports team, run a kind of class society, done debating, whatever it is, then you've been flexing your kind of leadership skills. So no, it happens from day one i think um the nature of how those skills are deployed and what you've got to learn is different throughout those three stages um when you're in the first stage when you're a young professional it's much more about building uh positive relationships with peers it's much more about influence and softer skills um in the second stage where you're managing lots of people it's about sort of how to get people to want to do what you want them to do Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's about how to motivate people and then I think it, when you get to the lead, you know the third level of, of leadership skills I think it's much more about setting direction inspiring people uh, defining the future of your business and helping people sort of follow you that way but no no you're learning I think you're learning leadership skills right from the start you just don't necessarily think that you are you don't realize it until you reflect back on it afterwards oh, so we can uh, learn leadership from our home when we are kids and that's a good one so we have now uh, the most two skills team building and leadership so we have yeah. to uh, do a good job on them okay Elsie said there is an increasing narrative around training and uh, retraining every 10 years is this something on your mind if so how do you stay on top of the relevant changes in the world constantly on my mind Uh, I am, all right, look, I think everyone's of this generation because technology is just going to keep moving faster and faster. But I'm of the generation that is digitally native, but not as digitally savvy as um, those that are coming after me. When a new platform like AirMeet pops up or when somebody 
when COVID starts and we all have to switch to Zoom, those are new things for me and that's fine. I can quickly learn them, but my comfort level with them has to come through training. It's not, I'm not like generations below me. I'm not like people who are five, 10 years younger than me where it's just natural. They're just doing it. Um, so I'm constantly aware of the fact that I'm having to retrain to stay relevant. Also at my, uh, at my age um, or stage in life, because I'm very young actually, but at my stage in life, you start to realize that you're out of touch with popular culture, that you're out of touch with how younger people are feeling, uh, but you're also not necessarily old enough to understand the people up there. So you are constantly having to try and learn and ask questions to find out about what's going on. And that's especially true in a world in which we live online because you end up living in your own bubble. I end up living surrounded by a bunch of other 40-somethings. Uh, and unless you make an active effort to go and find out what people in different age groups, different circles, different de demographics, different um, income brackets, unless you're going out to find out what these people are thinking, you're not going to, you're going to end up irrelevant and you're going to end up ultimately unemployable if you don't understand all these other views. What I do... Um, is actively make an effort to constantly train. You can see back here, that's one of my ways of learning. So I read a lot of books and I don't focus on my industry because the last thing you want to do after you come home from a long day at work is read about your industry. So I read about spies in Russia and what's happening there. I read about the history of Thailand. I read about gender equality. I read about the origins of consciousness. Whatever kind of takes my fancy and I see as a good book, I'll pick that up. That's You'd be surprised, that sounds faster, but you'd be surprised how important it is to just have broad frames of reference for knowledge um, because that breadth of knowledge makes you more uh, applicable, interesting and relevant to a wider range of people. It's also just good mental exercise. But then on a practical level, never stop training. I've done a couple of courses in the last years. I decided it was time to go out and learn about blockchain technology, so I did a uh, a night class for three months in blockchain technology so that I could learn what it's all about. Um, I've done courses in gender equality. I've done courses in writing and all sorts of bits and bobs. I think you've got, you want to pick things that you're interested in because if you're doing a long day of work, you need to, if you're going to do these things, it needs to be something that you want to do. Um, but I think just find things to go out and learn about. Um, be aware be, be aware of what your knowledge gaps are or are going to become so that you can try and plug them ahead of time. And when you do yeah, what you are interested in, you will charge your battery. That is yeah. uh, at the end of the workday, it will be uh, empty. So yeah. I like this. I do something like that. I took some courses in instructional design. I took uh, some courses in NGO. I am interested in NGO and I take some courses in uh, them in safeguarding yeah. and uh, in humanitarian core, uh, essential core. So uh, I think that uh, thing is uh, very impre um, uh, impressing. It makes you good in communication. That, that makes you a good communicator. You know yeah. about uh, everybody, you know about uh, their skills, uh, what are they uh, uh, yeah. thinking about. Okay. Well, the other, the other thing that's really important as well to reach on that one is um, creativity is an undervalued skill in, in a lot of businesses, but ultimately it's a very important skill. Cre people think about creativity as if it's going to be advertising or writing music or writing a book, but actually, you know, even if you're a lawyer or anything like that, which you would not think is creative, the huge amount of creativity required to solve any problem. Okay. If you're looking at a problem, uh, unless it's been solved 50 times before, in which case it's a boring problem, if you're looking at a problem, what you've got to do is you've got to try and find a solution in a novel way. 
the way that the human brain works is not that you randomly come up with ideas. The brain works by connecting previously known ideas. Concepts that you've come across before that you can connect randomly to create something new. So the more random things that you have rattling around up there, the more creative stimulus you have and the better you're going to be at problem solving. So this is the third and fourth skill, uh, creativity and problem solving. We have leadership, team, uh, uh, teamwork, uh, creativity and problem solving. Okay. What do you say? What to do when a company and or an organization facing a PR crisis? Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> what a great question. Um, well, look, I mean, it depends what the. I suppose it depends what kind of crisis the company is facing. Um, and I think. Um, What is the biggest problem that uh, any company can face in, uh, in in COVID or in crisis? Wow, I mean, look, the ones that are horrible in COVID and this kind of crisis, frankly, are people dying. It's you know, it's people within businesses dying or mass infections happening. Um, and in those kind of situations, in, in the worst kind of situations, you don't <laughs> probably a PR company is not who you're going to call. Um, You know, in, in the worst kind of situations, you're going to be calling a, a doctor or, or various other situations, various other professionals. So we, we tend to be called in on reputational crises. Okay, there's a difference between a crisis and a reputational crisis. Yes. So, you know, if you think about one of the biggest, most high-profile crises globally of the last couple of decades, you know, you'd think of say BP, where they've had a big oil spill, uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You know, that's thought of as a huge communications crisis, and it's often used in our industry as, as an example of what to learn about crisis management. I think it's very interesting because it, there is a huge amount to learn from that. But ultimately, that wasn't a communications crisis. That was an oil coming out of the ground and things dying crisis. And then there's communications afterwards. So so the, the, the short answer to your question is, is I think... You need to companies if they're going to be calling if they're thinking of calling up a PR company, they need to diagnose what type of crisis they're having and who can actually solve it. A lot of the time, I, I take phone calls from companies, sometimes governments, uh, sometimes individuals who are looking for a PR company, and you just you know you just have to gently explain to them PR is not going to fix your problem here. This is not a communications problem. I think communications can be really effective where you have a failure of understanding. Or an absence of knowledge between groups of stakeholders. If you have a company and its customers, and those two do not understand each other, or there is an absence of information between them, then communications can really help. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not, if you've not got that, then communications may not be the solution to it. You may have actually more of a substantive corporate crisis that requires a different kind of uh, approach. I don't know if that's a useful answer to that question. It's such a big and broad question. I don't know if yeah. it helped. But we have uh, from it the fifth uh, skill that uh, we have is communication or what we see the four C's uh, communication, collaboration and I didn't, I didn't, and, uh, I didn't, I forgot the, the two C's, <laughs> <laughs> critical thinking I think and okay. the fourth one, someone help me, <laughs> communication, collaboration, critical thinking and what is the fourth one? Maybe creativity. Uh, uh huh. Creativity. So we have uh, 
many skills that we must train on them and uh, please start with the with the skill that you uh, uh, want to know the most or love the most or are interested in the most okay yeah. i want now to say thank you to adrian we have a fruitful interesting and uh, teachable session it was an honor to me to meet you and meet you all if you want it to was a real pleasure to meet you all as well thank you very much for having me okay thank you thank you very much bye 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 all bye